Retired Marine Corps Colonel Frank Ryan is, at 68 years old, on his latest mission as a member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. Frank's current target is the elusive effort to eliminate school property taxes. I recently sat down with him to discuss his policy priorities and also hear about his plan to walk across America for a second time. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs, and I am in the offices of the Honorable Francis X. Ryan. Uh, Xavier, I, I assume? Absolutely. I told somebody one time, Matt, it stood for xylophone, and they called my bluff, and they said, spell that, and I can't spell xylophone. To this day, I can't spell it, so well, it's Xavier. Well, uh, I have the pleasure of talking to my state representative, uh, Frank Ryan. Proud to have voted for you. Uh, you're in Lebanon County. Lebanon uh, County, Pennsylvania, 101st District. 101st District, and um, Frank, uh, you are uh, a, a CPA. Uh, you are a former Marine, uh, and you decided, uh, you know, what, in your mid-60s that I'm going to run for the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. Uh, and so let's, uh, let, but I want to start with uh, where you grew up, Frank, and how your politics developed. Uh, and then we'll get into your time in the Pennsylvania House and some of the priorities that uh, you're focused on now. But uh, tell, tell us about your growing up. Matt, I was born in downtown Baltimore. A lot of people don't know. That's why I'm a Baltimore Orioles ah. fan. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, one of the, I was just going to tell you, one of the advantages of being an Orioles fan, by mid-May, I don't have to worry about what I'm going to do in October. So it's actually pretty easy. Uh, they, uh, they did contact me about a week ago and asked me if I was willing to play second base. They would save a lot of money. We're trying to see if I can get my walker yeah, right. on, on the infield. If we can, we're good. But uh, so I was born and raised there, and I, I'm one of five kids. Uh, came from a, a kind of an interesting family. My dad died when I was three. Mm. Uh, my sister was six months old, and uh, we had, from the, what I remember of my dad, just a really classy guy, although I told somebody a couple couple months ago, about a year ago, I got perhaps the best Father's Day gift ever. I heard my dad's vo- voice for the first time uh, in probably about 60 years. What had happened was uh, my nephew had gotten a recording from the U.S. Army. He, my dad was with a Special Operations Group, and World War II, and he had, had a recording of his voice. Hmm. And uh, I was wow. surprised. We, yeah, which, you know, as I tell people, you know, if your parents are still alive, give them a call. You yeah. may not have a chance yeah. to do that. But it was the most heartwarming gift imaginable. And my sister, Jean, was six months old when my dad died. Uh-huh. So she has no memories. We had a, a great uh, situation at home where my mom, high school grad, uh, went and decided to do whatever she could to keep the family together, and she did. Uh, we moved to Emmitsburg, Maryland when I was about 12, 13 years old, and she became a director of development. Uh, she was a secretary at Loyola College in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. The person she worked for said she's pretty impressive at what she does, nominated her for this job as director of development at St. Joseph's College. She eventually became uh, the president of St. Joseph's College. Oh, my. As a high school graduate, uh-huh. which was kind of interesting. Yeah. And, uh, and then uh, she did that when they were the sisters of charity, were just, daughters of charity were deciding to close the school. So she was part of a group to try to save it. And that's kind of my background. I try to keep companies out of bankruptcy. And she always uh, taught us to be fighters and uh, to rely on the God-given talents that you have and not to blame your success or failure on other people. But it was the hand of God and and using the gifts that he gave you to do it. And that shaped me in more ways Mm. than you can imagine. Mm. So uh, I don't believe in the word no. And uh, I often tell people that when they 
put a barrier in front of themselves. All they've done is they've denied the ability of their own capabilities. And uh, I get concerned whenever society starts putting up barriers, preventing people from doing well. And uh, if we leave it to the ingenuity, the creativity, and the liberty of people with our God-given talents, the things work out really well. So uh, you grow up in Maryland. You go to college in Maryland. I did. Uh, I, went went to, to, I went to Mount St. Mary's uh-huh. College. Small, okay. uh, Just dr- down the 15 here from, uh, from Harrisburg. And I like to tell people I was number one in my class. And out of three students, I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> so uh, I was in top the third. Th- yes. Top third. And, at the, and, and the bottom two thirds. It was unbelievable. <laughs> uh, no, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty small school. And they, they were a free market school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my degree is in economics mm-hmm. and, uh, and theology. So I'm probably the only... CPA in, in the United States who can uh, hear your confession and do your tax return at the same time. Uh, is, is there a point when uh, politics uh, became of interest to you? I mean, was that something that you guys discussed at the, the family dinner table? Your mom involved in politics at all? It, it absolutely well, she was not, but she was actually very, very active politically. Hmm. And my mom was very much of a trailblazer. And, and her perspective was to use your critical thinking skills, very similar to the discussions you and I have had about your own kids, mm-hmm. where you're refining those critical thinking skills, and we would discuss those. So I was raised right during the middle of the Vietnam War, and that's what caused me to enlist in the Marine mm-hmm. Corps and things of that nature. So I saw what I thought was a poorly designed strategic policy. Now, you're talking about a 17-year-old <laughs> who's making that comment, and then I went into the Marine Corps and I found out it was. Mm-hmm. And and so tactically and operationally, generals were having to deal with some pretty poor national policies. So I got very active politically at a young age. But then once I'm in the Marine Corps, and I spent a career in the Marines, mm-hmm. uh, once you get in the Marine Corps, your political activities are pretty significantly diminished. And uh, they, they frown on on uh, Marines and, and Army and, and Naval and Air Force officers getting active politically. Despite the impact that politics have on our, our military, of course, uh, you, you can't be involved in it. We can't, and but there's a good reason for that, yeah. because we have to have civilian control sure. of the military. But there's, and because there have been nations that I've been in in my mm. world travels, mm-hmm. uh, like in Honduras, where the military actually controlled the government. Uh, I went to Haiti and spent a great deal of time as a Marine in Haiti where a military junta uh, overthrew the government because it didn't like what the government was doing. And, and that's a problem. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we don't have that fortune in the United States as bad as some of the things that we do. But that actually, this free market stuff and the political aspirations really shaped me. And when I finally retired from the Marine Corps in 2002, I did get active politically. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost immediately, I ran for Congress. Right. And was defeated, mm-hmm. and uh, but it was a good race, and it, it was an eye opener, which is a blessing, I would argue. Uh. <laughs> uh, well, but you know what? Actually, it was a, it was a blessing because it had one my naivete uh, in the mm. Marine Corps integrity, and I would say this is true for the branches of service. Integrity is a really big deal, so you would never misstate another person's position deliberately, and I've carried that on into being elected mm-hmm. in the 101st district. Mm-hmm. And I know that's your political, personal mm-hmm. style as well. Don't, don't misspeak about what somebody else is doing. And, um, and so when I saw how they distorted some things uh, <laughs> about me, I went, well, that's not accurate. And, <laughs> and I was stunned by that. So I got caught by surprise. So I came in fourth out of a field of seven. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was an interesting race. Uh, although uh, I, I was kind of a, a funny perspective, because I had just gotten back from Afghanistan, uh, I was able to raise a significant amount of money, and I found that in the political world, that's not always a good thing. 
because there's more than enough people willing to help you spend it, <laughs> and whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. So uh, when I ran the second time, uh, much more cost-effective. So I decided to bring to political life the same type of fiscal conservatism that I've done in my private life. Now, so uh, obviously the military certainly uh, had a huge impact on your life and some of the things that uh, the values that you have, and certainly as you bring uh, them to uh, elected office at the in the House of Representatives. Uh, but I think probably one of the bigger uh, skills and experience you have uh, is in turning around companies um, and looking at uh, Pennsylvania in need of a turnaround, uh, that it's fiscally insolvent. I, I know that that's how you have, have run your races and talking about uh, the, the balance sheet. Uh, it doesn't balance uh, uh, for our state that we are in a world of hurt for those that are willing to look at it. Matt, I have to tell you, that's probably the best way you can possibly say it. I am a CPA and I specialized when I'm not playing Marine Reservist. <laughs> uh, I specialized in keeping companies out of bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And I've done about 250 companies in my career and only four have ever gone bankrupt. Mm. The vast majority, which is a pretty successful record yeah. because I don't believe in bankruptcy. What, what a lot of people don't mm. realize is that uh, only one out of every 20 companies survives a bankruptcy. As an example, General Motors did not survive bankruptcy. It's a new company. And, and so a lot of people get hurt. So my goal was on refocusing. But in the case of Pennsylvania, mm. I ran, I, I developed what's called a financial rescue plan. And what happens is it says if we don't get serious about our financial problems, we could go bankrupt. There's a big misnomer that a state can't go bankrupt, mm-hmm. and that's false. Right, right. And Puerto Rico is a perfect example. All it requires, they can't voluntarily do it. They have to go to Congress. They, uh, the House of Representatives, the Senate must provide a bill, and then the president must sign it and appoint in a three-person panel. Illinois is close to that. Yep. Uh, I would tell you that Connecticut is pretty close mm-hmm. to it. Uh, I think in a major recession, there's a good possibility that uh, California could be mm-hmm. in it as well. Mm-hmm. And then there are some significant cost drivers in Pennsylvania. I used to say we were two to four years away from having, having no political solution to our financial problems and that we would become insolvent in 12 years. I would tell you that number is now three to five years because we've made some successful mm-hmm. strides. Going to a defined contribution hybrid pension plan for new hires is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully we can expedite part of that process. Uh, but we have a great deal to do. We, we have tremendously wasteful spending. I firmly believe that we could cut 10% of the state's budget and not impact programs at all. Mm. And by doing that, we can then either pay down unfunded pension liability, put money into the infrastructure to repair those, or hopefully one of these days start reducing our tax rates, which we really need to do. So uh, when you talk about these things with colleagues and argue for uh, bills that I know you've got a multitude of bills that uh, for the average uh, Pennsylvanian finds them uh, mundane, uh, really not uh, things that they focus on, but from uh, a uh, implementation or uh, um, the, the impact that they could have uh, could uh, uh, provide uh, some of the, the solutions uh, for what we're talking about here. Um, how do your colleagues respond to, to when you say, look, we're, we're, we see an insolvency down the road? Do they say, oh, Frank, you're, that's hyperbole, um, you're exaggerating? Um, or are people paying attention uh, and saying, yeah, I see these indicators and we are headed into, you know, I, maybe it's where 
it, when we finally have an Illinois or a Connecticut go off the cliff, then I don't know if that wakes people up. But how, how are uh, folks responding to your arguments that, look, we are not on, a, on the right path? I've been actually very pleased. Yeah. In my first year, I was a freshman last year at age 66. Mm-hmm. Hard to believe a freshman <laughs> at age 66. I never you got through the hazing and all of that. I, I yes, did. Yeah. I never had a kegger yet. Okay. Though. I was on okay. a drink, but um, I'm willing to try to give it a shot. Uh, and, uh, and so my sophomore year, now uh, six months into it, seven months into the, uh, the second term, I will tell you that the colleagues have responded incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have found that being a CPA, and there's, there's five of us in the house who are CPAs, that we're respected for that. And with the financial expertise I have on corporate restructuring, people have been very, very willing to listen. And I would tell you that we've already had a significant number of bills passed, either directly or indirectly. Seven bills that I've authored have become law. Uh, Four directly, three. uh, One was so good that it actually became a Senate bill. (laughs) And uh, and I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek because the one thing that we have to give up on in this place is pride of authorship. The goal is to get the job done. It doesn't matter who authors. So we had a bill, got it through the House on the, the bonus depreciation. The Senate got it, needed it, uh, put a, a different name on it, came through. And I spoke on the House floor to pass the bill I wrote. And so, and I'm, I'm more than happy to do that on all the bills I have. So in two years to have seven bills done is pretty significant. And we're working on a number of repeals as well. So on financial issues, my colleagues have been real. In fact, they've come to me now to ask for questions about financial comments. Mm-hmm. And, and so we each have our own area of expertise that people are willing to listen to, like Seth Grove is particularly good on reinventing government issues. He's a representative from York County. That's yeah. correct. Mm-hmm. Oh, good point, good point. Yeah. And, and Seth has, um, uh, from York County, has done a phenomenal job on performance metrics and mm-hmm. measurement in reinventing government. And so we have Senator Kristen Phillips Hill has her expertise, uh, and other people have done a great job. Uh, a lot of people who are very, very supportive of, of you and your organization well, do the so, same thing. So uh, what are some of the biggest things, Frank, that um, are going to be difficult to do, but you see as absolutely necessary if we want to right our financial uh, ship here in Pennsylvania? The, I'm going to start with the, the two that I think are the most important mm-hmm. and end up with the one that will have the biggest impact, which seems a little bit unique to say it this way. Yeah. But there's a bill, House Bill 985, the Fraud and Forensic Capabilities Act, which would give the Auditor General the ability to have a fraud and forensic investigation capability and subpoena power. That's got the possibility of identifying about a billion dollars a year in waste, fraud, and abuse, and that puts real teeth into the bill. That bill cleared the House of Representatives unanimously, and it's now in the Senate. My House Bill 1053 on lean government, L-E-A-N, is to put best practices in government. It's part of the uh, reinventing government package that Representative Seth Grove from York County has put in. And there are eight of us who have written those bills. I'm the prime sponsor of House Bill 53 as an example, which is to get the government under control and start reducing those expenditures to start paying down some of our underfunded liabilities. And it includes some consolidation, correct? It of, does. of a lot of the agencies, things that seem uh, somewhat duplicative. Uh, it, across the executive branch? It does, and it makes it more customer-centric. It Mm. reduces the number of governmental agencies down to four, to where there's four primary focuses. And mine, as an example, is on business, tourism, and workforce development. And and so uh, Seth Grove has got the one from York County as an example on the issues of the the Office of of the uh, Professional Management and the issues of budget and the the equivalent of the Congressional Budget Office. Mm And those will provide a policy and process structure to government spending that we need to do. So all of those. But the most important bill that I think I'm working on that people will sit back and care about, 
There's Auditor General bills most people won't care about, but it's property tax elimination. And this one is one that I've been working on a long time. I am a, a supporter of House Bill 76, but I think there's a better way to do it, and it's House Bill 13, patterned after the 13 original colonies. <laughs> and it's because of liberty is a major issue on that. You know, when, when property taxes first came up in the United States, we were not the United States. It was the colonial governments. And it was because the only people who could vote owned property. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't remember the historical context under which that has done. The way this system has morphed into, uh, you have a situation in the United States where your home is collateral to all government spending. And until you break that collateral relationship, you'll never get governmental spending under control. So I tell people my House Bill 13 properties, it's called the School Property Tax Elimination Act, is really designed to restore liberty. It's really designed to restore balance of power to where citizens have it. It affects every person in the Commonwealth. We're writing a paper called The Myths of Property Tax Elimination. So I get a lot of people that say, uh, if you rent your property, you're not paying property taxes. Of course you are. It's built into right. your rent. Right. And 44% of Pennsylvanians rent. So uh, when you tackle this issue, of course, uh, we've seen this uh, come up over decades. Uh, it's been discussed in Pennsylvania. Uh, what makes, one, your plan unique, and what gives you hope that uh, we might actually get this done uh, this time, right? Because it, it's almost been uh, uh, Lucy with the football uh, so many times where we've had a plan. It's been up for a vote, and uh, it goes down in flames. Um, what makes uh, your plan unique, and uh, what gives you hope that uh, you can actually get it across the goal line? If you remember, you gave me a piece of advice when I first got elected, and then Brian Cutler, the majority leader, gave me additional advice, and Speaker Terzai has been incredibly helpful. And he said, listen to people before you start writing the bill. <laughs> and, and so I went out, instead of taking Frank Ryan's preconceived notions, I went out and I started talking to every person and every group possible that was opposed to House Bill 76. And it said, tell me why. You're which was the which was kind of the uh, primary vehicle for property tax elimination uh, probably over the last decade. Right. It, it, yeah. Actually, almost 15 years yeah. now. And it's been the the name 76 is right. synonymous with property <laughs> tax elimination. And so uh, when as an example, uh, the uh, the majority whip, uh, Kerry Benninghoff, gave me some advice. He said, Frank, here's some specific people to talk to. And when I did, I had a draft of a concept. It mm -hmm. was a one-page concept paper of how I wanted to tackle it. And and so I got the feedback. I'm now on my 16th revision. Okay. And it's out for public comment, so I can do the same thing to the public that I've done with other groups. And they told me what the issues were. So here's what the issues were. People didn't trust Harrisburg, and I've been here two years, and I don't either. <laughs> so I don't know any easy way to say that. Uh, I, don't, I wouldn't want money to go into the general fund. And I, I would make this comment is that in the long run, it would make sense to have money go into the general fund, but we have lost faith and confidence as a governmental agency, as a commonwealth, not the legislature, not the executive branch, not the judiciary, but government in general. That the and so the, so the concern to kind of summarize it is that look we right now we have somewhat local control over the revenues and if you just shift it all to where it becomes state revenue that you are essentially empowering 253 members of the general assembly to become a super uh, school board right and and how they would allocate those funds and so you you think that that is a legitimate concern that if you shift this all from local to the state that 
Um, Harrisburg isn't going to necessarily manage that money any better. I think we've demonstrated that we will not manage it any better. <laughs> so it's not a question. Uh, yeah, anymore. it's not a question. Yeah, I, I, in fact, as soon as the person told me what their objection was, they said, I'm in. <laughs> How about if we do it this? And this is where it came up with the concept of a local personal income tax, where the money stays local. Mm-hmm. It will go directly to your school board. Uh, the other comment that we got that I think was particularly uh, a concern was the local control aspect. Uh, people were saying that, you know, we've already lost a lot of control to yeah. begin with, and I moved into different areas because of the quality of the school system. That statement in and of itself ought to cause everybody concern. As I think you know, I'm a big proponent of school choice and school vouchers, and we want to make sure that, that the real focus is on the quality of education from the ch- for the child. And so we're really arguing about how we pay for it. So that was another issue. The other uh, major concern that we got, I think, from everybody else was how do we deal with uh, the planned con, the planned uh, construction issues? How do we deal mm-hmm. with the existing debt? Yeah, uh, and things because those are all those were all local decisions made. And why should the state taxpayers pay for the Taj Mahal that may or may not have been necessary uh, in one school district, and then the school districts that were um, you know, fiscally conservative and managed their debt well, they end up getting punished because they're paying for the folks that didn't, right? That, I mean, that's exactly right. And then the other aspect that I heard from a lot more people than are willing to say it, and their, their, their comments are saying, oh, perhaps only, I'm now 68, only a 68 year old could say it is right now we are a very tax advantageous state for seniors. Yes. If we put all of the burden on school funding and take it away from property taxes, which benefits seniors the most, mm-hmm. and I, I am one, mm-hmm. I like to tell people I are one, and, <laughs> uh, and, and put it on working families, we'll see a greater exodus of younger working mm-hmm. families out of the Commonwealth, and that is a crisis. Well, so this gets to a conversation that you may or may not remember. Uh, I know it was a number of years ago when you said, Matt, um, what if— we taxed pensions in Pennsylvania and retirement income. Uh, do you think that that would uh, help to uh, bridge that gap between property taxes and what we need? And I said, it absolutely would. But uh, the person proposing that had better be ready for incoming fire. And I said, uh, well, a senior citizen, uh, former Marine colonel, is probably the only one who could propose such an idea as taxing uh, retirement income. Uh, that is, I think, is probably going to be uh, one one of the biggest uh, differences of any of the property tax uh, relief or elimination proposals out there. And two, probably uh, the only thing that would really bridge that gap uh, um, sufficiently. Uh, yeah, I know that your proposal has a uh, a 4.92% tax on retire. How does that com- compare with other states? Uh, I mean, is this, is it high? Is it, is it low? Uh, uh, and then what's been the response so far that you've heard from seniors saying, wait a minute, I want my property taxes eliminated, but I don't want to pay another tax on my retirement income. That is the <laughs> crux of the question. Yeah. That's interesting. Let me answer this. First of all, on the 4.92%, that's the correct percent. And 3.07% of that goes to the state to help take care of the hold harmless provisions. Which is the same as the personal income tax rate of 3.07%. That's okay. correct. That's correct. And then what that does is that goes into the general fund. Okay. And it helps stabilize the cost of programs for seniors, which I'll mention in a couple of seconds. And then 1.85% goes to the local school district. What I uh, tell seniors is you, it's a simple calculation. Take your property taxes. 
divided by 0.0492, and that's the amount of income you would have to earn in retirement to pay the same as you do on property taxes. So if you were to take $3,000, as an example, as a property tax, divide by 0.0492, it's almost $61,000. So if your retirement income is below $61,000, you save mm-hmm. if it's more than that. My bill also does not tax Social Security. So 65% of Pennsylvania seniors get Social Security only, mm-hmm. so they get 100% tax okay. But one thing I think we seniors have to be aware of, and, and I'm going to make two comments, and it's, it's difficult for seniors, and I am one, to hear this. We're not cheap. <laughs> this perspective that we don't have any cost in the state budget is a myth. Mm. So let me give you an example. I'm publishing this today, which will show that in this current year budget, of cost of seniors is in the state budget, not including the other cost of governmental agencies, like the aging department is not included in that number. Mm. $8 billion in direct benefit to seniors. Uh, And of that, someone says, well, the lottery fund takes care of that. Yes, the lottery fund takes care of $175 million. (laughs) And so what we're doing is for decades, younger working families have been paying for the cost to seniors. If we shift the property tax, which about $3.5 billion to $4 billion, I don't have the exact number yet, is paid for by seniors. Mm-hmm. If we transfer that all to younger families and younger workers, the exodus from the Commonwealth, which has started 15 years ago, will occur in such droves that I'm going to make this comment to all seniors. If we do a homestead exclusion only, which means we only give property tax forgiveness to your primary residence, Here's what you're going to find happen. All businesses will become a target for school districts. Mm-hmm. If they need money, they just yep. go ahead and nobody Reassess. will care. Yep. Nobody will care. They'll do spot appeals and they'll be paying and they'll continue to leave the state. Number two, in three to five years, you will find that they will, the state government, I'll be long out of office by then, the state government will be uh, paying, uh, will be saying that we're going to have to charge you an income tax as a senior. And oh, by the way, you'll still have your property taxes. You'll get them back in Mm -hmm. droves because it will be the only way to save the state. This proposal of mine is the last-ditch effort to keep the Commonwealth out of bankruptcy. We have a $50 billion-plus deficit. So the second uh, in school districts, the myth that I want to break for seniors as well, I have people say, I paid for the cost of my children when they were in school. And I would tell you, if that were true, we wouldn't have a $50 billion (laughs) deficit. Yeah. And so uh, it's hard to say. And what that, is that deficit or that debt uh, that uh, you're talking about there? That, that debt yeah. is predominantly the unfunded pension liability. Okay. And mm-hmm. I'm on the Peasers pension fund. Mm-hmm. So I like to tell seniors and all working families this. For every dollar of payroll in a school district, mm-hmm. 34.27% uh, cents or 34.27% mm-hmm. is sent to Peasers, the public school employee right. retirement system, to cover Just for the, pensions. Just for pensions. Yeah. So this idea that we've been increasing money spending on education is a myth. We've been increasing how much money we've been putting into the pension system. And it's had no direct impact of any consequence on education. So uh, let's get back to the 4.92%. How does that compare to other states? I mean, are other states taxing uh, retirement income? 42 other states tax retirement Mm -hmm. income and 13 other states tax Social Security. Mm. And their rates are, generally speaking, the same or higher uh, some one person made a comment to me and said, I don't like what you've proposed. I'm going to move to West Virginia. And I said, OK, here's the West Virginia tax code. By the way, they tax Social Security 
and they tax retirement income at 6.5%, and they also have a 6.5% sales tax. And her comment was, she said, well, I'm still not happy. And I said, well, ma'am, I didn't, I, I'm not happy either. I pay more on this bill. So let me give you an idea of the response, and I think that's mm-hmm. particularly important. Right now, between 50 to 60% of the people are in favor. 20 to 25% are what I would call vicious compliance. Yeah, I, I, I know you got to do it, but I'm not happy about mm-hmm. it. And 25% of the people hope I die. <laughs> but if you subtract family members out of that, it's only down to about 4%. Uh, but I'm, I've taken the approach, and I've told my staff that I'm going to call every single person or talk or send an email to every person who's against it and respond about why. And when I've done that, I've done about 30. I've gotten about 100 negative comments so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gotten about, uh, about 350 positive. Well, so so let, let me put the, the, the whole p- pie together, if, if we will. One, we're looking at replacing about $14 billion, Is that correct? 15, in prom- $15 billion? $15.2 It was okay. $14.5 yeah. billion. And last year, the school boards increased property taxes by $500 million, And they're expected to increase property taxes every year by $500 million from now for the next 10 years. And property taxes will have to go up by 2.7% annually just to meet that obligation. And in large part because of the pensions. Uh, those are right. Those are huge cost drivers. So you're looking at uh, $15 billion plus. Uh, and so you're saying we can cover this by 4.92% on retirement income. How much does that generate? $1.4 billion. Okay. So and it's the, 10% of the replacement tax. Okay. And then you have a 1.85 personal income tax at the local level. Now, a lot of people don't realize they're already paying a local personal income tax uh, for the schools, right? I mean, it's a 1% that's, uh, um, I know I pay that. Right, uh, I do and too. So, a lot of, so is that in addition to, to the local income tax we're already paying? It, it is, and I need to explain that because I've yeah. got a provision in this bill. It's a 1.85 personal income tax that would go directly to the school district. That generates about $4.5 billion. Okay. And so you're aware if a school district receives more money under my proposal than they currently get in property taxes, they are obligated to reduce the earned income tax. So, so, it would, it, so it's uh, revenue neutral is what? It uh, has how to, it's, my it, bill is revenue okay. neutral. And then there's the, the last component is an increase in the sales tax from uh, 6% to 8%. And, of course, uh, in some of uh, Philadelphia, uh, it's going up beyond that, uh, given the, their own local income tax. Um, how much does that generate going from 6 to 8? And that generates about an additional 7 to $8 billion. Okay. And so you were my 2% increase. It's being defined as a local sales tax, mm-hmm. similar to the Philadelphia tax. And that money then would get allocated to the county for the benefit of the school districts. And that would be a payment made monthly. So there's actually local control on that as well. And then the last provision that I did that people should be aware of, we've uh, expanded the sales tax base to include food and clothing at the 2% rate only, though. They will not pay the 6%. Mm -hmm. And the reason we're doing that is because I needed that to balance out the number because school property taxes went up so much, number one. And number two, uh, I didn't want to put the a full 8% on those because that would be a regressive tax on, on people who need it. But it also generated uh, the least negative impact, but the most positive benefit. And if some, because I had a question someone asked me, but if someone's on welfare, they're going to have to pay a 2% tax. That's not true. Under SNAP benefits or access cards, if you use those cards to purchase food 
those, those are, are exempt from, exempt automatically by federal law. So uh, one of the criticisms that uh, of past efforts is that the numbers just don't add up. Uh, uh, how how do your numbers, at least from the preliminary, I know that you're on the front end of getting this vetted and uh, already getting comments, pl- uh, positive and negative. Uh, but what about the numbers? Uh, are folks saying, you know what, Frank, uh, these numbers do add up, that they would uh, uh, wipe out all school property taxes? I, I will tell you that my, my numbers do add up. <laughs> uh, I've already had three iterations already from the independent fiscal office, which is why I had to modify the bill three prior okay. times because I didn't have enough revenue. And that's why you see the local income tax, so as an example, the sales tax increase initially became a 1% increase, and now it's 2 And there was a slight expansion of the base. That expansion of the base got me the full 100% property tax exclusion to be able to make. So the numbers do work. And how does this address uh, county property taxes? Does it at all? It does not, Matt, because that's got to be a separate issue, and that's got to be under the single-purpose uh, bills in Pennsylvania. You can't mix and match different code sections. So um, we have to do a constitutional amendment to get rid of the municipal and county taxes, and that's my next foray. <laughs> and, what, and, and a lot of people may not uh, recognize the distinction between school property taxes and, and your county uh, property taxes. Um, what percent of, you know, g- in general, uh, are your are school property taxes versus county? I, I know for myself it's, you know, it's a huge, you know, the school property taxes uh, are significantly more than the county property taxes. For the vast majority of people, it's 80%, mm-hmm. and uh, the county taxes are 20%. And what you like about my bill, House Bill 13, if this bill passes and we uh, the, property, the latest property tax bill you will get will be in July uh, 2020, and then the new taxes start on October 1st. And that gives the school, because property taxes are prepaid, so the school districts get the money for the next 12 months, and then they start getting the income to build up their cash reserves to be able to weather the storm. And then when you have your first reconciliation of your escrow taxes from your bank, your monthly mortgage payment will drop by the amount of the school property taxes. Typically between August and November, you'll see that drop. So before you start paying those increased taxes, you'll get the windfall from reducing your escrow payments. Now, if you don't escrow, you just don't have to put any more money aside to pay the tax when it comes to. Well, uh, I wish you luck in, in all of this, and particularly uh, as, as a former Marine uh, uh, and a senior citizen, uh, you are the right one to uh, propose these types of things that aren't necessarily uh, popular. Um, but I think if we're talking about uh, um, tough choices, um, it's going to have to be tough all around. Uh, Frank, but as we, as we wrap up here, uh, I want to go back to 2014 um, when you decided, I'm going to walk across America. And you did so to, to raise awareness uh, about, uh, for, for children with uh, emotional needs, behavioral needs. Um, and you wrote a book about it. Um, let's conclude on that good note as we've spent all this time talking about numbers, um, something that you're passionate about and, uh, uh, tell about your experience a little bit. You know, it's interesting. My faith uh, is extraordinarily important to me as I know yours is. And, uh, we, we share that common faith Mm -hmm. and I became concerned in 2008 and 2009 when the state of Maryland stopped the funding for children with emotional behavior problems because of the economy. 
And I ran a center. I was a volunteer chairman of the board of a center for children with emotional behavior problems. And I made this decision to walk across the United States. And I think that was the Holy Spirit's way of guiding me into this job here. Mm. And, and I'll tell you why. There were times when I was walking across the United States where I wanted to quit. Mm. And I remember probably the best story happened. I had injured my ankle severe. I fractured my ankle in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Walked another 800 miles, got to Buckland, Kansas. And I'm a, a pretty positive, upbeat person. I got a pretty good sense of humor. My wife says I'm not funny, but I think I am. <laughs> and what happened was we, uh, uh, I just said, I mean, the pain is excruciating. I was limping. I called it the limp across America. And I mentally made a decision to quit. And I walked into a farmer's restaurant in Buckland, Kansas. And I'd mentally said, when I'm done breakfast, I'm going to call my wife and I'm going to get a hitchhike to Kansas City Airport. I'm done. I'm coming home. So I'm pretty bubbly. I'm in the restaurant. I still remember what I had. I had uh, six eggs, uh, four pancakes, (laughs) like six pieces of bread, uh, you know, 12, 13 pieces of bacon, four or five glasses of orange juice. And I was still hungry when I was done. And the farmers that were there, this one young lady, the waitress, said, you know, I'd seen you from Dalhart, Texas, to Guymon, Oklahoma, to Liberal, Kansas, to Buckland, Kansas. What are you doing? I explained. And she said, that's great. And at the end of the meal, they, all the farmers got together and bought my breakfast. Mm. And so she's, and I have a picture of what she wrote on that. And she put her, 18-year-old girl, put her hand on my shoulder. And she said, sir, you need to have faith. And I said, and I can keep in mind, I was pretty mm. bubbly. Mm-hmm. And so she said, I said, ma'am, I do have faith. And I, I actually was taken back by mm-hmm. it. And she said, no, you don't. You've got quit written all over your eyes. <laughs> and she said, she said, don't be one of these people who lets these kids down. Hmm. Put your pack on. She said it a little bit more explicitly than that. She actually you thought uh, you're back in boot camp here, huh? I actually did. I actually did. And she said, put your pack on, get up, and start walking. And because I think that was the Holy Spirit was acting to her, said, you know what? Don't be a quitter. Hmm. And that, I think, is what helped me go through this process. Because I know people aren't going to be real happy. Yeah. And, and, and I want to be respectful that people are afraid. And we have to be compassionate and understanding. But there's a logic to everything that I'm trying to get done. I think uh, Christ is leading me to do an important thing that will save us in the long run. And that's a skill set. And, I, you know, for my workout days, uh, when people first meet the workout person, they love them because they're afraid then they hate them because they give the solution. Well, I'm in that hate <laughs> stage for some people right now. And, and I, I just, you know, I ask everybody for their prayers that we can weather this and that I will be understanding of all the people who have sincere, legitimate questions out of fear because it is change. Well, uh, Frank, I thank you for your service to our country in the military. I thank you for running for office when you could be out golfing, you could be retired just uh, working in the garden. Uh, you're working on the things that matter because I know you're passionate about this country uh, and the legacy you leave behind. So I just want to thank you for your service in the many, many ways that you do it. And uh, I wish you all the best. Uh, in your current endeavors, and uh, whatever your next career is, uh, you might want one that's a little less stressful. Actually, I've decided <laughs> to walk across the United States again. Okay. In four years, to, we're going to try to raise $100 million for kids with disabilities. I want to solve the problem, and I don't think it's a governmental issue. I think we as, as people of faith have to mm. solve this one. Uh, solve the problem that when a, a parents have a child with disabilities, that they know that when they pass away, that their child will Mm. be taken care of. Mm. That's my goal. 
That's a wonderful goal. So thank you for that, uh, Frank. And thanks for sitting with me here on Brews and Views. Fantastic, man. Thanks again. It's always great seeing you. You're a great friend, and and God bless you for what you've done, not only with your family, but for our community. Uh, Thank you, Frank. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.